Well, uh, today's um, title for the sermon is uh, No Counsel is Bad Counsel, and we'll look at re- the reason why here in just a second. Uh, see if this sounds... My wife and I, we were gone this past week teaching um, at a camp. Um, we did, got to do a marriage thing, and so it was a lot of fun. Um, in the middle of all of that preparation, as well as sharing and stuff, a lot of funny stories came up, some that were hilarious, now that there's some distance between us and that, you know, not funny at the time, really funny now. That Anybody have a couple of those? Okay. Uh, one of those, it didn't come up um, at, at, except in private conversation. Thankfully, I didn't have to share. Uh, there, I, we, when Jen, we were living in San Antonio. Uh, my wife was in PT, uh, physical therapy school. Uh, I was teaching down there. Somebody so kindly gave us Spurs tickets, and they were good tickets. So we're going to make a date out of this deal. We're going to go down the Riverwalk. We lived way up on the northwest side by the medical center there in San Antonio. We're going to go down the Riverwalk, have dinner, uh, go see the Spurs game, all of that kind of stuff. So I go down and we park. And as we're walking to the restaurant, my wife goes, I'm not real confident we should have parked where we parked. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, we come back go to the Spurs game, have a great dinner, wonderful dinner. We come back, go to the Spurs game, enjoy the, all of that. Uh, come back to where the car was supposed to be located. First experience, I will say proudly, only experience with a tow truck, you know, in terms of all of that, your car getting towed off where it's not supposed to be. Uh, and it cost us whatever it was, $150 or whatever it was at the time which to us was a significant chunk of change. Um, More than once, I have not asked for advice and gotten myself in trouble. And then when she said something along the lines of, I'm not sure we were supposed to park there, more than once I have not heeded advice and got myself in trouble. Anybody with me on that right there? I'm not the only, thank you, all four of you who are honest. Um, If we don't seek advice... That's bad news. And if we don't heed advice when it's given, also bad news. And today we're going to look at this passage, and that's kind of what happened in this passage. So back in Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, per, excuse me, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, they heard about this. Um, and the, this that it's referring to is Joshua's defeat of Jericho and Ai. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patch sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country. Liars. (laughs) So now make a covenant with us. Just pause here so that everybody's clear. Um, They're going up to somebody who's been wiping people out, and they they show up with the, the shoes that they mowed the yard in, right? And their oldest set of clothes, you know, with the holes in them and stuff. They brought along a lunchbox that was old and creaky and you could barely pry open and a thermos that had a leak in it. And I mean, like, that's who they are. That's who, that's how they showed up um, to Joshua. And they're saying, hey, we've come from a distant country. It's actually only about 10 miles down the road, but let's call it a distant country. Uh, 
So now make a covenant with us. Verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. And then how can we make a covenant with you? Because what did God said? Don't make covenants with these people. <clears throat> um, and Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? Verse 9. They said to him, from a very, not just distant country, a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them. Say to them, we're your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's your, here's your bread. Excuse me, here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses. <laughs> Liars. Um, took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day. We've, we've come to you now. But behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, also lying. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals are ours are worn out from the long journey. So the men took some of their provisions. And if you are an underliner, an, a star per, drawer or whatever, this is a great phrase and the phrase in Joshua 9 to lock on to. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. People show up. Here's where we're from. Here's what happened. Here, look, here, look, here's dry, crumbly bread. And they didn't, the people of Israel did not ask counsel from the Lord. Verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Uh, I want to talk today about this no counsel and how no counsel is bad counsel. And just two statements. Number one, uh, if you don't seek counsel from God, no counsel from God means that, one, you will end up being deceived. You will end up being deceived. It's not a question, it's a statement. There's not a, uh, anything that, that makes it um, possible, it is a reality. You will end up being deceived. Um, <clears throat> these people, they showed up, you know, this story, they had all of this stuff that was kind of unfolding. You will end up being deceived. N uh, two bullets under this. Number one, their cunning, the, the cunning of the people of Gideon, uh, excuse me, of Gideon, they, their cunning led to a bad covenant. When you make deals with people who are unscrupulous, where does that, where does that put you? It puts you in a bad place, right? You never have good deals with bad people. That's, that's, it's always a bad plan. And for those of us who have leadership responsibilities in our jobs, in our families, or otherwise, this is a great example of the principle that hasty leadership is bad leadership. They did not seek counsel from the Lord, and because they didn't seek counsel from the Lord, they got into a covenant, into a partnership, into a deal with folks who didn't have their best interests at heart, who weren't good people, and who uh, were actually trying to uh, just, just make it through. Their cunning led to this bad covenant. Three times they came to an ass, hey, make a covenant with us. Hey, make a covenant with us. Hey, make a covenant with us. And finally, Joshua and the people of Israel said, oh, okay, all right. But they didn't ask counsel uh, from the Lord. Anytime you start playing ball on somebody else's terms, that always in, ends poorly. Are you with me on that? Uh, an example of that would be this past week. I said my wife and I were at this camp. We were teaching um, on marriage and stuff. One of the big things at this camp is the, a relatively new sport to me. Only heard about it and saw it just a couple of weeks ago. Is pickleball. Anybody? Pickleball? It's like ping pong for adults. You know what I mean? Uh, or, or tennis for people who don't want to run. I mean, like that's 
That's how I would describe it. And it's stupid fun. I mean, like, so fun. And especially when you get people who are competitive, and all of a sudden you're swinging at a wiffle ball with a small paddle, and it's on. I mean, like, you know, there's trash talk and all this kind of stuff involved. There, was two, there were two courts at this campground, uh, one of which was A court and one of which was B court. B court, the, the kids would all jump on and they'd knock the ball around. And whenever kids get on and they're not really sure how to play the game, they start making up their own rules, right? You're like, you can't hit it like that, or you can't stand there, blah, 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 you know, and you hear the kids going on and on and on. As the night grows later, less and less kids kids, more and more adults, and then, you know, it really gets intense about 10 o'clock. Well, Friday night, um, things were unfolding, and, and uh, our second born, Sam, uh, he was over there playing and stuff. He goes, hey, Dad, do you want to play with me? I'm like, sure, let's, let's play. Um, and so the, the, the thing was, uh, but we were going to play a game, like a for real game against these two teenagers. And, and so I said to him, I said, hey, man, that's fine, but all of this other stuff, that you've been doing, we can't play like that. What do you mean, Dad? I mean, like, there's actual rules to pickleball. I didn't understand them all. I didn't know. But there's actual rules to pickleball, and we just can't play willy-nilly like we want to. Like, we've got to hit the ball here, and we can't stand here. I mean, we have to do these things. Well, that's not how we've been playing. I don't care that if that's how you've been playing. I'm telling you, those are the rules. That's the deal. So we get to playing, and occasionally he'd look at me and go, why are we doing this? Like, why are we doing it this way? Because those are the rules, son. That's how this goes. And so we get to playing, and we beat two teenagers. <laughs> we beat these two. Well, the winner from court B gets promoted to court A. Boom, boom, boom. And off we go um, to court A. We go play on court A against two adults. And so I look at my 11-year-old, and I'm like, you good? Yeah, I, I, I'm good. And so, you know, he'd hit the ball, it'd go out. There's no mercy. There's no, that was on the line. There's no, I should redo it because the wind blew or a bird flew or whatever. It's just, you hit the ball out, son. It's their ball. You know, like that, that was the thing. And every so often, he'd still look over and go, uh, Dad, why are we doing it this way? These are the rules. If he was going to play with his dad, he had to play by the rules. One more time, if he was going to be there and play the game with his dad, with his father, he had to learn to play by the rules. And in our cultural moment, what more could be said than that right there? If we are going to do the things that our father wants us to do, we have to play by the rules. And if we're going to do that, one thing we cannot do, one thing that we must not do, is enter into these terrible covenants, entering into these bad things, because we're deceived, because we are not seeking counsel from the Lord. You, if you, do, if you fail to seek counsel from the Lord, you will end up deceived, and you'll end up in these bad deals, in these bad arrangements. Some of you have seen that relationally. Some of you have seen that familially. Some of you have seen that financially. There's a hundred ways that we could go with that even when you don't understand them, even when you don't understand why, you still have to play by the rules. Second thing is that um, under this, it, you'll end up being deceived, and the deceit that's coming your way, it's very shrewd. 
it's very true. There are few temptations and even fewer lies that come at you front on. You, you ever noticed this before? Like so much of temptation and so much of, uh, of, of the spiritual kind of lie that we're talking about here um, actually kind of comes in the back door. Like there's a heaping load of truth along with it, but because there's error mixed in with the truth, it makes it actually untrue. And um, temptation's that way too. Rarely does somebody come at you and smack you in the face with temptation. Actually, it comes in the back door, right? And it just sneaks up on you. And all of a sudden you're going, why am I doing this? And why am I feeling this way? In this case, you know, again, they showed up um, dressed and food preparation, all of this kind of stuff. That deceit that they brought to the table and deceived the uh, people of God with, it was very, very shrewd. And when these temptations and when these lies come at you and they kind of come along the back door, there is enough truth attached to them to make them both plausible. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I can see that. And, and preferable. Oh, oh yeah, 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 that's the way we want to go. But if we, if we don't seek counsel from the Lord, um, we'll find ourselves um, saying not only plausible and preferable, but actually this is what I believe. And that, that always ends up bad. It always ends up bad. And I've been thinking about this um, just this week, thinking about us as a church. And uh, here's what I want to do. I just want to outlay four areas in which, boy, we, we need the truth. And here's what I'm going to say about this before I, I list the four. Um, I want to say this, I, you know, I, what I'm not saying, some of you won't struggle with these at all. You'll be like, yes, that's exactly right. Um, and some of you won't struggle in here with these. But man, when you get out into the, into the warp and woof of your everyday life and things go kind of go crazy, did, did you notice this week was kind of a strange week? And Not strange, tragic. Did anybody else have emotions running hot and heavy? I mean, like burning inside of you. The burning of our emotions can put smoke in our minds such that we can't think clearly anymore. And if that's the case, what I'm wanting to do in these moments is just have a minute to think clearly so that in here we can say, this is the truth. And so again, some of you may not struggle with this. Uh, some of you may be, but let's, let's be clear about it uh, either way. Uh, here, here's one place that I want to make sure that we hear and, and see the truth, and that is on the uniqueness of Jesus. Um, it, it is, Jesus has never been more popular and less followed um, in terms of our culture. Uh, you know, they love the way, what he says, particularly if it fits their agenda, political or otherwise. Um, you know, they love maybe even the example that he set, whatever. The uniqueness of Jesus. Um, People put him in a category with a bunch of other religious leaders. The problem is, is that Jesus doesn't put himself in that category. Jesus instead says something crazy like this in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice, please, um, that it, he is not saying, I am a way. I am a truth, and I am a life. I am the way. I am the truth. And I'm the life. What he's saying and making the claim is, is that no, there is not another person on the planet who has been, who is, or who will ever be. There's not a, another person who's going to be like me. He's the son of God, come from heaven, down, born of a virgin, um, lived a, a perfect life as a, as a human under the will and into submission of God the Father. And he, um, did, because of his perfect life, he died a perfect death as a sacrifice for our sin. And then he got up from the dead, just like he said he would. 
See, the, the, the problem some of these other religious folks is um, they predict that they're going to do something and they may or may not be able to do it. Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to get up three days later. And he died and got up three days later. What? The uniqueness of Jesus is in that. And our culture pushes and pushes and pushes to say, oh, yeah, he's one of a great number of people who has great influence in the world. No, no, no. He's the king of the universe, exalted in the heavens, and there is no other name um, under heaven by which anyone must be saved. That's what he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. And listen, church family, um, that ought to put some urgency in us. The uniqueness of Jesus actually ought to push us outward, not huddle up and go, oh, well, aren't we glad we know him, but to push us outward. Sitting in there listening to a couple of the, the students give testimony in their um, Bible study time, and that one of them stood up and said, Hey, listen, I know that there are people around me um, who need to know him, so I, I need to step up into that. Church family, there are people around us who need to know that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so we need to step up into that, the uniqueness of Jesus. The second that goes right along with that is the gospel. People interpret the gospel and misinterpret the gospel, I should say, uh, in, in a couple of different ways. You know, they think it's all about heaven, going to heaven when you die. Listen, I'll be so glad to go to heaven when I die. Don't get me wrong. But the gospel changes people's lives, not just for heaven then, but today. Are you glad about that? Glad about that, that the gospel changes people's lives. The other way people, one of the ways people misinterpret that is particularly um, uh, popular, although that's a bad word for it, um, among the poor, the, the very poor, and among suburban affluence. And that is, if I put my faith in Jesus, my life's going to go right. Everything is going to go up and to the right. It's always going to head in the right direction. The arrow's going to be pointing up. And it's going to be trending right. Everything's going to be good. The gospel is not your life is going to be right. The gospel is your life is going to end and Jesus is going to give you a new life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Just so we're clear, crucifixion is a method of execution. You die. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm still walking around, but when I put my faith in Jesus, my life ends and his life takes over. That's the gospel. And that's good news for you and for me, because what that means is I don't have to um, try to navigate this whole thing on my own. Jesus is doing this through me and in me. A third place, um, a third place where I think we need to be very, very clear on some things uh, is, is this, this issue of sexuality. Uh, in our culture, and I won't push very hard here because we've got littler, littler ears in the room, um, but, but in our culture, we're in a highly confused state about this. Um, and I promise you, there's not a, there are questions that I can't answer about that um, in a conversation. And I know that there are questions that I can't answer about that up here. There's so many layers to this, and you've got to peel that onion back and try to figure out what's going on and all that kind of stuff. Here's what I can do from up here to say this. The New Testament is very clear, and the church has always been very clear about this. The ethic, the sexual ethic of the New Testament is fulfillment and faithfulness inside of the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Chastity outside. That's it. I mean, it could not be, where's the line? Well, the line is fulfillment and faithfulness inside the covenant of marriage, yes. Outside of the covenant of marriage, chastity, no. Um, and again, that's not 
highly popular today because people want their own autonomy. If you're a follower of Jesus, and even having some of these conversations um, with uh, college students and others, um, having some of these conversations, it just makes me think about this verse in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, flee sexual immorality. Every sin, every other sin that a person commits is actually outside of their body. Uh, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And you can just think about all the implications of that and all the problems that come with um, that. Or versus, this is verse 19. Or do you know, excuse me, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? When you put your trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes to reside inside of you. So it's no longer just a body. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. This is the part. You are not your own. You are not your own. What's my body? I can do what I want to. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. The price you didn't pay, the price Jesus paid. So glorify God in your body. Yes, inside of this covenant of marriage. No, outside. That, that's, that's the sexual ethic of the New Testament always has been, and um, as far as God's concerned, always will be. Last one, um, a place where we can end up being deceived. Uh, emotions are running so hot right now on the issue of race. And rightly so, because there's been some horrific things that have gone down in the past week or so. Horrific. Um, here's what I want to do in this moment right here. It's just to think as clearly as possible and like a Christian. And this, the Christian way to think about people. There are two mistakes people make. Bad and good, and they put them on a spectrum. So you start looking at people and you're like, oh, you're way worse than me. You're like way down there. Oh, you're actually better, so you're on this side. Bad and good. The Bible recognizes no distinction between bad and good. It's always death and life. That's what Christianity is about, is death and life. Don't think, don't think like that. Uh, the other way is that people judge people based upon uh, the, you know, their exteriors. And neither one of those are appropriate when it comes to thinking clearly and to thinking like a Christian. Why? Because the way that we are called by God to think about people is this. Um, every one of us at our core is the exact same. Why? Because every one of us stands at the foot of the cross and says, Jesus, if you don't save me, I'm in bad shape. Every one of us has the exact same need. At the foot of the cross, we're all declared guilty, and when we put our trust in Jesus, He forgives every one of us. Doesn't matter what our exterior looks like, doesn't matter what our past has been, doesn't matter what, um, you know, the things that our family of origin was into, doesn't matter. When we stand at the foot of the cross, everybody gets equalized, because we all have the exact same need. We're all sinners, desperately in need of a Savior. In Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That is an a ethnic distinction. And at the foot of the cross, there is no ethnic distinction. Um, there's neither slave nor free. An economic distinction, male or female, that was a class distinction uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? What's Paul saying there? The way to look at the people around you, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, is not to see, um, hey, there's a person who went to A&M, there's a person who went to UT. It's not to say there's a person 
um, who's struggling in their marriage. There's a person who it looks like uh, that they're straight out of the Andy Griffith show. Um, there, there's a person who, um, you know, has, has a lot going for them. There's a person eh, who, you know, we're not so sure about their decision-making skills. There's a person who's black. There's a person who's white. There's a person who's capable. Every one of us comes down to this. We're all desperately in need of a Savior. That's the way that we think as Christians about everybody around us. When, when emotions are ro- running, and again, rightly so, so hot and heavy, then we have to remember that. I, I just want to um, use a very simple illustration to, I hope, communicate this. Had a friend, uh, one of our friends from the early service, draw this for me. That's a pretty flower, isn't it? Everybody? This section right here, is this a pretty flower? Make sure y'all get to see it. That's well done. I won't say who it was because she would be embarrassed, but really, really great. She drew me another flower. Like that one? Which one do you like better? How many for this one? How many for this one? Okay, why, why this one? There's what? More colors make it more beautiful, right? And that's a lot, a lot, I think, of what heaven's going to be like. More colors will make it more beautiful. Let's think, boy, let's think so clearly these days on this, and Man, it's complicated. I get that. I'm simply calling us to this. Think about people as in desperate need of a Savior. Let's start there and then go from there. Okay. Uh, That is not to minimize any of the pain, any of the hurt. I'll have more to say about that here in just a second. Um, It's not so much that anybody disagrees with anything that I've said so far in here. Maybe you do, but maybe not. It's that when things happen, when the news hits, um, we just tend to, we, we can, we don't necessarily tend to, we t- but we can. We can run to our friends, we can run to Facebook, we can run to let our emotions take over, whatever, and, but we don't run to God. And that sounds like this, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And when they didn't ask counsel from the Lord, they ended up being deceived. And it cost them things down the road in Joshua. We'll see. It cost them these things. They even got into a battle that they weren't necessarily supposed to be in. No counsel is bad counsel because you'll end up being deceived. Secondly, uh, you will not identify your enemy. Verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Verse 16, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors, that they were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. So they figured out that, oh, they just actually live right, there, right down here. The people of Israel set out, reached their cities on the third day. The cities were Gibeon and Shephirah and Baaroth and Kirith-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. 
So they became cutters of wood, drawers of water. That's a menial task for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said it. You will not identify their enemies. Just two things under here. One, one number one, uh, their enemy lived in their midst and they didn't even know it. Right in the middle of their lives, their enemy was in their midst and they didn't even know it. Disguised and lived there for three days and they did not recognize their enemy. When we don't seek counsel from the Lord, we will miss our enemy. And it, what happened when we miss, in their case, when, it, when the enemy got missed, it caused distrust in the congregation and division among God's people. They murmured, it says, against all the, the leaders. They had made this covenant. Oh, well, they murmured. Anytime you see distrust and division among the people of God, you can bet that the enemy's at work. It also justified their disobedience. They're the ones who said, hey, listen, you know, we're going to keep our word here. And although they may have done the right thing in the end, they didn't do the right thing at first because they did not seek the Lord. They didn't seek counsel from the Lord. And this is where we'll flip it and try to make it very practical here. Um, we have an enemy too. You will not identify your enemy if you don't seek counsel from the Lord, and he may very well be in your midst, but we have an enemy too. It's not a Gibeonite. I promise you that. Um, in fact, um, it, it's not somebody who's different from us. It's not somebody who's different from us. You look at some of the things that went on this past week. People judged people that, that were different than us and then acted based upon their judgment. How did that end for us? How did that end? Terribly. Because they misidentified their enemy. It's not that person at your work. It's not that person in your neighborhood. It's not that person who has uh, a particular um, skin color or background or whatever. It's not, we don't have an enemy. The, the enemy is not the person different from us. It is not those grieving losses that we don't grieve. Psalm 34, 18 says this, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. You know what that means? He's near to the brokenhearted of all colors and all stripes. And if you're not grieving over something that somebody else is grieving, God's still near to them. He's still near to them. And the person who's grieving something that you're not grieving, they're not your enemy. Um, it's not anyone with skin on. I don't know how else to say this, but Ephesians 6.12 says this, that we wrestle against, uh, not, excuse me, we wrestle not, it's such an important word, I shouldn't forget it when I quote it, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know what that means? Anybody with skin on, doesn't matter what color it is, they are not our enemy. I'm speaking this to a majority white church, I get it. As a white man, I get it. People different from me, they are not my enemy. People with different skin color than me, they are not my enemy. Uh, let's be clear about a couple of things. Uh, one, where is the church exploding right now? Absolutely going crazy. China and South America, you know what's different there than here? They're not white. They're not. The vast majority of the people that we're going to worship in heaven with, guess what? They're not going to be white either. Jesus wasn't white. Can we just be clear about that? So listen, our 
struggle is not against flesh and blood, even if that flesh and blood is different. Just let's think clearly about that in the middle of all the turmoil that is in our culture. Who else has a word? Church, who else has a word to say to this culture except the people of God who have heard from him and can speak eternal things in a temporary situation? Who else does? Where are they going to go? To our politicians? I'm way off script here. I just, I need you, (laughs) I need you to hear my heart this week. I just need you to hear. We need to be the voices that speak truth and clarity with compassion into all of these situations. It's not anyone who's skin on. It is not anyone that we think got what they deserved. I actually saw that on Facebook this week. Not from one of you, as much as I hate confrontation, I promise you I would have picked up the phone and called. But somebody said, sounds like might have gotten what he deserved. May we never get what we actually deserve. The gospel is Jesus got what we deserved. If we can't hold on to that and then extend compassion and mercy to other people, I'm not so sure we actually understand what we're doing here anyway. Here's who our enemy is. This is how the Bible describes him. Revelation 12, the great dragon. 1 Peter 5, a roaring lion. Um, John chapter 10, the thief, and he has an agenda to come to steal and kill and destroy. John chapter 8, a liar and the father of all lies. Again, Revelation 12, Satan, the accuser of the brothers. That's our enemy. We have an enemy. It's just nobody sitting in this room. It's nobody who made the news this week. No. Long before this is a systemic problem, this is a sin problem. It's a Satan problem. And so who better to speak into that than the people of God who can see and, and, and speak to this clearly? We have an enemy too. Okay, last thing. My, my wife is always saying, don't forget to give them something to do. So here's what I'm trying, I'm trying to give you something to do. Things to remember. Number one, pray before you post anything. Not... Out on a day with my sweetie. I mean, you can pray about that too if you want to, but before you try to enter into any substantial conversation online, which I'm not real sure is a great thing anyway, like we need probably less Facebook and more face to face. That's a whole different thing. Talk about that later. Um, But you need to, I mean, not just think before you post. No, seriously, pray before you post. Seek the Lord's counsel. That's what we're after here. Seek the Lord's counsel. Just because it's been shared doesn't mean it needs to be shared again. Number two. Open God's Word and then go do it. Like, open it, read it, go do it. What better witness do, does the what better witness could the world have, and what better witness does the world need than the people of God looking at what Jesus said to do and then going and doing what Jesus actually said to do? There is a way that you are salt of the earth. There is a way that you are the light of the world. And how is that? By doing what he said to do. 
So go do it. Do, do we need, does our world and our cultural, does it need a people who hear from him and who can do what he says to do? Yes, desperately so in these moments. Thirdly, labor to see each person in light of the cross. The only thing, the distinction that ultimately and eternally matters is to see each person in line of the cross. And if you've got a person who doesn't know Jesus, open up your mouth and share the gospel. Invite him to church. We've talked about this. Yes, invite people to church. Yes, tell your story about how God's worked in your life and share the gospel because that's what changes people's lives. And lastly, mourn the tragedy. Yeah, there's a lot of tragedy to mourn. Mourn the sin, too, that was underneath it. Mourn the sin that we are that kind of people who would do that. I don't know how to end any more awkwardly than I'm doing right now, so let me just say that. We need people to do what God has said to do. And so I'm going to pray and just ask that God would apply this wherever it is for you. We'll have people at the back. Roger and I and Kyle maybe will be back there. If you want to pray about something or with someone, we'll be at the back at the tables there. We're going to stand and sing in just a second. But before we do, I just want to pray. And then um, ask for God's help. We'll sing, respond, and take up our offering in a little bit.